Hello everyone and welcome. Can I also acknowledge that we meet today on the land of the Ghana people of the Adelaide Plains, that sovereignty was never ceded and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and welcome to the Festival of Ideas. Um, luckily, you can demask if you wish. You don't have to, but we are under our 50% capacity, so feel free to do the big flamboyant reveal. If you need it, the exits are up the back, the way you came in, you'll be fine. My name's Tori Shepherd. I am a journalist and the least interesting person on this stage. So I'm gonna introduce you to our speakers and bear in mind throughout that we will have questions at the end. So while you're sitting there and you're thinking that I missed something bloody obvious, because that's fairly likely to happen, tuck it away and uh, we'll be setting up a microphone in the aisle so everyone can ask questions. Okay. We've got Taryn Brumford. The first line here is, she's here to change the world. <laughs> I sort of knew you'd pull that. I don't know who that. wrote that. <laughs> I don't know who wrote that. I didn't write it. I, I thought you might pull that face. She's the director of the film Embrace, which has been seen in 190 countries. She's working on the next documentary and moving house, which seems wildly foolish to do all of that at the same time. She's an author, a speaker, and is the leader behind the body image movement. We've also, have we got Clementine Ford? Hey, there she is. <laughs> oh, Clem, you just got a little applause. I know. So, <laughs> Clementine Ford was going to be returning to her homeland, but unfortunately, that damn pandemic got in the way. If you don't know, she's a writer and a best selling author now in Nam or Melbourne. Um, her book, Fight Like a Girl, has caused huge debate and enraged the men's rights activists and she's probably one of the fiercest, bravest people I know in terms of fighting those MRA bastards. So good to see you, Clem. Here we have Professor Megan Warren. I, I had to say that very carefully because in my head I kept saying Warren, Warren. She's a professor and social anthropologist here at the University of Adelaide and focuses on sociocultural values and practices and how they're embodied, particularly around eating, disordered eating, obesity, and the gendered and moral assumptions that similarly inform how we respond to such complex problems. Um, and it might not sound like it from that, but I think she's a bit of a live iron. And Cam, at the end, Cam, pause, pain, because if you run those two names together too quickly. It sounds very activist. So Cam is a queer autistic researcher. Campaign, I'm just going to say it now. Campaign is a uh, queer autistic researcher, educator and writer based in Adelaide. And at the moment he's studying critical autism studies where he works with autistic people to expand understandings of autism beyond the traditional models of tragedy and disability. And we might even get to talk about tragedy porn. I think a little bit later. I hope so, we've got a lot to get through. What I wanted to do though, was start with a vulnerable moment. Because online is a battle that, you know, nobody is winning at this stage. You open yourself up, you get hurt, you have to be there, but it can be painful. So could we just go along, I mean, God. My, okay, here's my, one of my favorite moments was Senator David Lionhelm, got everybody to dig up old, horrible photos of me and post them and talk about how disgustingly ugly I was. <laughs> and you know, just when you think you've got a thick skin. So, Taryn, your experience online. Yeah, well, for those of you who don't know, um, about nine years ago now, I posted some photographs on social media. They were uh, non-traditional before and after photos because we generally see people in a before image that is uh, in a heavier body and really uh, sad. And then they lose weight and miraculously they become happy. So I swapped mine around and it went really viral. We're talking, you know, a couple of hundred million people um, saw this photo and it made headline news across the globe, which is the most stupid thing I've ever heard, what a woman <laughs> learns to embrace her body at its headline news. Um, with that many people seeing that image, uh, I was a photographer, mum of three, living in Cumberland Park. I'd never had any, I'd never done any media interviews. This was a completely new territory for me. And 
the trolls were cruel. Um, they came after me and my family and my kids. Um, and when it was unfolding, I made a promise to myself when I was in high school. I dropped out of high school because I was bullied. So when I dropped out of high school, I, I said to myself, if ever in life I feel like someone's trying to put me in a corner um, or say things about me or troll me, or tease or bully, that I would stand up for myself. So I started to try and get back to these tens of thousands of messages that I was receiving. I'm like, I am going to get back to all of them. Um, uh, impossible. But it also, it took away so much of my jo joy and, and my light and my love, and um, it took me down this really um, awful path. Of, of trying to keep up, um, trying to justify myself, trying to justify my actions and my words. So I very quickly learned um, to pull back, let them have their say. The irony is when I released my film in 2016, our lawyers came back and said there was a section about the trolls in the film, but we had to block out their names because of how they might feel. <laughs> And we did, we had to. We weren't going to get our provisional certificates and our insurance and our green light to put this film in cinemas unless we blocked out their names. So um, it's, been, it's been a road. Are you still glad you did it? Which part? The initial post. 100%. I mean, what, you know, I received over 7,000 emails and messages from people around the world. When I shared how I felt about my body image, um, it really sort of revealed, which was back then nine years ago, an epidemic that was going on behind closed doors. Um, people were holding on to their secrets. I had one woman write to me and said, as a child, um, I suffered from sexual abuse. Uh, I now walk down the street. I'm in a heavier, larger body. I have two children. Um, people think I'm a fat pig, uh, and that's what they call me, but they don't know that every single day I'm trying to keep my head above water, um, and I'm just trying to survive. And she'd never told anyone that story. So yeah, I am so happy that I posted those photos. It's had a personal toll on me because I never set out to be a public figure, um, but I'm just going along for the ride now. Megan, do you open yourself up on... Oh, thank you for that one person. No, start it again. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, I think we talking. might have to yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, thank you, everybody. <laughs> Megan, do you open up online? Do you let people um, see what's going on in your head? Uh, in my head, but probably not my life. So being an academic at, a, at an institution, I'm very mindful of who I'm representing when I'm on Twitter, for example. Um, so most of the, the things I post are actually related to research or what's happening politically, but keeping in mind the various constraints that we have in terms of litigation and... Um, Etc. So I think uh, I've never experienced trolling because I, I don't put myself out there in those vulnerable positions. Our vulnerabilities are much more about putting our own research and our work out there and getting rejected and critiqued in that way in a very public forum uh, in our writing and research, but um, certainly not that personal sort of vitriol, that cruelty and that sense of damage that you can have uh, that, that you've just uh, recounted, and I know that uh, Clementine also has experienced that. So um, I'm lucky to say I don't have that sense of... Um, Is there anything you ever wish you'd shared and you haven't until now, and now you're going to tell us something dastardly you would have posted? <laughs> <laughs> I just... No, you don't worry. You don't have to answer that one. So many things. <laughs> That's what I want to know. Yeah. Cam, how's your experience been in the world of social media? Um, well, I certainly haven't been as exposed as Taryn or, or Clementine, but um, I publicly transitioned from female to male online uh, about five years ago um, in a much smaller way. Nothing went viral, <laughs> but that was a positive type of vulnerability for me because I saw a lot of the people around me learning through my experience and becoming more aware of the huge variety of people that are in the world and they um, overwhelmingly were supportive over time and that was an incredibly positive thing. 
Um, unfortunately, a couple of years ago, in my personal life, my transness was used against me, and I ended up closing down and, and turning a lot of my social media to private because I was afraid that what I shared so openly before would be used against me in my personal life. Um, and I'm just starting to open that up now um, and to share some of my research as well uh, because I still think it's important to share some of those vulnerable moments with particularly younger trans people who, who often don't see those positive stories um, of support and just joy in life. So, yeah, trying to find that balance between vulnerability and safety is very difficult. And I'm yeah. still. Did you miss it, it when you were out of it? I missed the community. There were certain aspects I didn't miss, um, which was that sense of always being watched and always having to be on and look right and behave in certain ways and portray your life in a particular way because that's, that pressure is very real. Um, but yeah, I did miss that sense of community because that was a way that I connected with a lot of people in my life and some of them sort of drifted away as a result. We might come back to how you're dealing with things now and how community online works as well. Mm. Um, Clementine Ford, every time I get a death threat or a rape threat, I think of you. <laughs> 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 oh, I'm so touched. Yeah. <laughs> Particularly because I always think I know who this person is or I know where they work or I can probably find out without too much difficulty and then I run through that thing in my head of, shall I? Like, why do they get to say these things and what is wrong with me exposing them? Tell us, how, how are you going now? Uh, okay, well, firstly, I'd just like to say that I'm so sad not to be there in Adelaide with you all. I, uh, it's, to speak about vulnerability, it is a very weird time right here in Melbourne. I'm coming to you from obviously beautiful Wurundjeri country, but it's grim at the moment. So um, I'm feeling a little bit kind of like an open wound here. So I may cry at some point. Um, Thank you all for sharing your stories as well, by the way. I know how vulnerable it makes you feel to sit on a stage and say those things. Uh, I guess one of the things that probably is going to come up in, in this session, I mean, everyone's heard about the online trolling that I've received and the way that I've fought back against it. But I've done some pretty awful things online myself, and I've said things that I regret. And I know that there is one tweet that people will be very familiar with when they think of me, that they're probably wondering how someone like me who could have said something like that can possibly be sitting here and talking about the abuse that they've received online. For me, I think what's interesting is that, you know, we talk about the anonymity of social media and how people can sit behind a screen and say things that they would never say to your face. And I can say as someone who has been led into that, that I know exactly how that feels. You get so head up, you get so angry, you feel like you're proving a point for a moral purpose. And for me, with that particular tweet, I'm not gonna repeat what I said, everyone knows. With that particular tweet, and I'm not defending it, but it was part of a contextually longer conversation about the domestic inequality of labor that was um, emerging as a result of the pandemic. So for me, I saw it as being an expression of rage at this injustice, but unfortunately, the online space enables us to reach for like truly heinous language and truly heinous rhetoric, but then because of the nature of that space, I mean, Tori, you're on Twitter, you know what a hellscape is. I left Twitter after I wrote that tweet because I thought to myself, this place is not good for me. This place is not good for my soul. It's not good for the, it's, it's not good at helping me to be the kind of person and human that I wanna be and the kind of activist that I want to be that has a moral framework. But also there was a part of me that realized that that was the discourse that I'd been swimming in for the last 10 years which enabled me to think that's a fine thing to say. That's okay to say something like that because this is how people talk. This is how people have talked to me for the last 10 years. So it felt, it felt like almost a surprise initially that people would be shocked by it. I don't know, that's kind of not really answering what you said, but... Um, no, I but it's a really interesting it tangent. It's here. like the Overton window of social media discourse where suddenly things become sayable that previously wouldn't have been. 
Well, exactly. And I think that one of the things that people struggle to do, and I'm not sort of saying like, wow, I'm amazing. But one of the things that people struggle to do, which I've, I've worked really hard on myself in trying to do, and it's not always easy because we do, we do get irate and indignant about being called out for things. And our first impulse is always to defend ourselves. Something I've tried really hard to do is, is to accept when I'm wrong and to be able to apologize for the things that have been harmful to people. I'm not saying I'm great at it all the time, but I feel like that's something that's really sorely lacking in online spaces as well. The ability for people to, to sit in the discomfort. What I do when I expose trolls and when I, when I try and, um, I guess, kind of use them as, as an example is to make them sit in the, in the discomfort that they've tried to force onto me. So I talk about doing the spotlight switch, which is, um, you know, for example, Tori, the, the, the men who send you equally heinous things, they want you to feel afraid and they want you to feel ashamed and they want you to feel scared of being a woman in the world and a woman on the internet who has opinions. They never expect you to switch that spotlight onto them and flood them with those same feelings. And so one of the things that I talk about but one of, the, one of the reasons that I do that and why I do expose trolls and why I do share what they say with other people is firstly, I shouldn't have to live with it in private. This should not be the price that I or any person pays for having an opinion on the internet or having strong social justice values. But also they, they need to know what it feels like to sit in that shame and they need... Oh, Clem, we've lost your audio. Right now, everyone wishes they could sign. <laughs> Let's go to Cam. So we're talking about the self. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. That's not good. Wave oh, okay. if you can just, hear just, us. Just, hang on. Oh, yay. Can you hear me? Yes, you're back. Oh, Do you remember where you were? Sure oh, no. <laughs> I'm not sure at which point you lost me. Um, so you were talking about making the people who oh. troll you sit in their own shame. Okay, right. I'm sorry about that. Um, I, I just you're think on mute, Clem. You're on mute. You're not anymore. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not. You're not. I'm sorry. That was mean. <laughs> oh, I hate technology. Um, we all need to become comfortable with with. We're, as a people, we are so afraid of what it means to feel ashamed. We think, we automatically assume that shame is always a bad thing. Shame makes us feel bad, and sometimes people make us ashamed for the things that we don't deserve to feel ashamed for. But shame in and of itself can be a really useful, constructive tool for growth. And being able to explore the reasons why we're feeling ashamed about something, particularly if it's to do with our own behaviour towards someone else, I think is a really essential part of being a human, but also something that we really need to bring into the... Um, we that has to be an essential part of engaging online because it's so easy to behave in really inhumane ways on that in that online space. Thank you so much, and we're so glad you're with us in you know two D form. Yeah. I wish it was three D. <laughs> Me too, Cam. So we're talking about you know the selfie, the way that the gaze is upon us, and how we deal with having that gaze upon us. Um, and you were saying that you pulled away from that for a while. Can you talk us through your decision to come back and how it feels to be back in the gaze and how you would deal with challenges in the future? Mm. Well, part of it is a professional decision because my research is done all online um, among autistic people who spend a lot of time making community online. So to be in those spaces, I have to be visible again. Um, I've started to tend more towards what Megan was talking about with a more professional, um, curated version of myself online, which isn't my preference, I have to admit. I did like the, um, I guess, the sort of freedom that came with that kind of radical vulnerability that I had before, um, but I'm still a little gun-shy. Um, about the consequences of that because in my personal life they were quite significant um, and in my future professional life that's a difficult balance to walk because whatever institution that I'm working for is going to have certain standards and certain expectations that 
um, particularly someone who has some of my more radical views, um, is going to step outside if I'm not careful. So, and that's a, that's in itself is quite difficult. But um, yeah, I don't think I've found the balance yet between that kind of honesty that I really value in other people who are in online spaces and um, in my professional life. I really worry about how that might hurt your brain to have to be carrying your curated self mm. alongside the honest self that you'd like to be. Yeah. I mean, for so many of us, the, the honest self is still very curated because mm. I'm not showing the days when I have shutdowns and I can't function and five days' worth of dishes are sitting on my sink. Um, and in some ways, that's a shame because it's all very well for me to say, look at me, I'm an autistic person living this great life, which is true, but it doesn't show the rest of the story. And that's what I, I miss about how I used to share online. Because hmm. um, there's a lot of judgment attached to that, but I think it's important to see. Hashtag no filter. <laughs> <laughs> Megan, how do you see this affecting? Let, let's talk about let's talk about weight for now because that is, I mean, I would say one of the things that I I thought you know I'd reach middle age and this wouldn't be a thing that my friends worried about anymore. Not true, unfortunately. How does the gaze affect how women think about and show themselves online? And I'm going to do a bit of a double whammy. I'm wondering. I have this beautiful studio shot. I think it's like on the promo stuff where it doesn't look like me at all. And so now I've got really used to like meeting people and they're like, oh, <laughs> you don't look like that, you know, studio makeup um, professional photo shoot person. And that actually like it, it messes with my head a little bit. I've got to get a different shot. But how does that affect women who are going to all these lengths to present themselves a certain way online when that's not the way they are in real life? Um. I think I can respond to that in relation to some of the research I do. So um, most of, much of my research is working with uh, young, young women, but also some women in middle age who've had eating disorders for most of their life. And that sense of um, presentation is so key to their everyday life. And rather than being um, negative in a sense, there, within that community of people with eating disorders, uh, often the ways in which they're presented online can be a very productive uh, sense of community for outsiders looking in, for clinicians, for example, or family members. It's very worrying because in my research, I found that people with eating disorders and anorexia in particular use those images, those cu curated images of themselves which they share online as a way to actually become better at what they do, so to become a better anorexic. And they talk about anorexia as a lifestyle, not a disease. So they're strategically taking this uh, you know, historical psychiatric category and turning it into something else. They're, you know, they're using their own agency to resist the ways in which anorexia, anorexia and other eating disorders have been pathologised through medicine. So, in fact, it's quite a powerful, um, empowering platform for them. It's also empowering because they uh, can share tips and so it builds community and it's also a way of um, resisting some of the, the norms of femininity and, and pushing back against psychiatry and medicine. And it's, it's very empowering because they're doing something which many women uh, across their lives fail at, and that is dieting and taking control of their weight. So in that, in that field, uh, the ways in which uh, images are curated online is, is very empowering in, in, in their view, um, but of course it has quite um, dire consequences. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think we think of empowering and having agency as being a good thing, but if the community you're cultivating has such negative side effects, mm. it's obviously not. And I think, is it pro-Anna? There's a lot of like very, um, yeah, pu pushing hard on the, on the anorexia line. Yes. Can you break, is there, are there ways to start to break that cycle of reinforcement? Yeah. yeah. So I think people uh, with eating disorders, certainly the ones that I've been working with, are very cognizant of the productive power of those sorts of spaces. 
But having said that, they all re they also realise that it can be very negative and that it is a, it's it's very much a seductive hole because what they're looking or stepping into is um, a desire. So it's ironically like a hunger, which is never ending because you can never be thin enough. You can never be. Um, in, they say to me the best anorexic is a person who's dead. So you know it's it's not a good place to be, but it's it's very seductive. Um, so some people also use those spaces if they're wanting to move away from that. So I've more recently seen people with eating disorders using those spaces uh, in terms of recovery. So building community with other people who are at a very similar stage of an eating disorder process where they're actually using that in much more productive ways. So it can be used, it depends on who's using it and what that community is being built around and who, who's it for? Is it a rejection? Is, is it a resistance? Is it conformity? You know, there are so many different uses um, and um, things which are produced through these online spaces. Taryn, yeah, you've got something to say. Well, no, I was just <laughs> going to add to that. I know that the work of Dr um, Pritchard at Flinders University speaks about the before and after. It's such a classic that we see on social media. Self-transformation, it's very seductive, Abs isn't it? Well, it is seductive. And so many women and men strive to have that particular body shape. Um, and they're using those images to motivate them and change their own health behaviours. So the outcome is that they look like those people in the magazine or in the after, after photos, but we know that it actually has the opposite effect. Um, and the, the, the scientific data shows that it's more likely to take you away from that goal and, and further towards being depressed, um, being demotivated, um, and being worse off than what you are. Clem, how do you think we're going in diversity? I, I always love when you see like, oh, amazing, here's a plus size model. She's a 12, isn't this incredible? We're doing <laughs> such good things for diversity and beauty online. What, what, what are we missing? I mean, you still don't see um, cellulite. Oh, look, I think that, yeah, I mean, I guess it depends. It depends where you're looking. I think that that's true in mainstream media for sure. Still very, there's still a huge lack of diversity. Um, I do think though that the difference between now and say 10 years ago, I mean, obviously we also need to remember that social media is pretty young. It's, and it's evolved so rapidly and so, so exponentially in terms of how people use it and what, what you can find there that the way that we've progressed is actually pretty amazing in lots of respects. I see, you know, I, I use Instagram a lot now. I didn't really use it so much before the lockdown last year, but I found that for me personally, it was a place where I could, I began really building a feminist community online there. And, and it became a real kind of lifeline during the lockdown to be able to connect with other women, a lot of whom were also going through the Melbourne lockdown, some of whom were in the UK and in Canada as well. And, kind of had this unique um, shared experience. But through that, I've, you know, I follow the accounts of a lot of fat women online, and I'm using that word obviously deliberately because the reclamation of the word fat as being nothing but a descriptor is something that a lot of places still have to catch up to. Um, so I follow a lot of accounts of fat women and I see really diverse bodies and I follow a lot of accounts of people of color. And so I think it's there if you want to look for it. Um, but the, the problem is whether or not people are looking for it and the fact that there's still an abundance of, um, you know, influencer types who present very curated feeds in very same-ish colour um, palettes. And, for, I mean, look, to, to be honest, it's not my cup of tea, just, for, just watching someone on a beach. I mean, I don't want to be too deriding about those accounts, but... I don't really see what people get out of them, but obviously some people do get something out of them. Um, I think that that diversity is there, but the problem is now that diversity has also become saleable. So capitalism has cottoned onto the fact that people want diversity in their feeds and they want diversity in their brands and in the people that they buy things from. And so, you know, it's, it's like um, pink washing advertising or feminist washing advertising or, you know, a, a a brand that is actually not good for women, feigning being good for mm. women because it has a diverse model on the cover of whatever it is that it's selling. So I feel like in some ways it's become, 
the world has become more progressive, absolutely, and that is something to celebrate. But there are a lot of insidious ways in which regressive mechanisms in the world want to glob onto that. And being able to sort of spot the difference, I think, is the trick now. Yeah, beautifully put. Uh, one of my favourite examples of pinkwashing was a company who uh, they sold fabrics and they made um, all of their pink fabrics for, you know, Breast Cancer Day or whatever, a dollar more expensive and then advertised that for every metre they sold, they would donate a dollar to breast cancer. So. <laughs> right. I think one of, one of my most recent um, favourites would have to be the... Um, I think you talked about it, Clementine, was the, uh, the oil which was uh, marketed for, for tightening women's vulvas. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Mecca was selling... Was that Mecca was selling an, an oil... Uh, no, Mecca, the makeup company here, which actually I buy a lot of products from, so I'm part of the problem. Um, they were advertising an oil that, you know, exactly as the good doctor said was supposed to freshen up our downstairs. Oh, my um, God. So that's... Yeah, all of that kind of stuff... Did I they think call that, it labby oil? You know, oh, God, I can't even remember. But I just feel like we have that. to remember at the end of the day that, that all of these things will be... You know, it's like there were a lot of good, a lot of good damn posts and TikTok videos made during Pride Month about being wary of corporations that celebrate diversity and celebrate, you know, um, queerness only in one month of the year and then go back to business as usual. In some ways, it's really, really hard to kind of challenge. I mean, we like capitalism and patriarchy is so deeply embedded in, in the structure of the way that we live now. And we can talk all we want about how progress comes from dismantling these things. But I mean, that's a big project. And it's something that I know that a lot of us, everyone on stage is working towards, but we don't have the answers and it's probably, you know, as, as much of a downer kind of comment as this might be, I think it's also accurate. It's not something we're going to see in our lifetimes. It comes back to that old saying of, you know, we're planting seeds in a forest. We're planting seeds for trees to grow into a forest that we may never sit in. And, uh, you know, that's there's something really beautiful in that as well, that you do it anyway, even if you can't benefit from it. But it is demoralising on the days when you're being bombarded by threats or you're being, you feel like you're put, sort of pushing the proverbial uphill to see just how insidious it all is and how uh, difficult it seems to be to make a difference anywhere. OK, Clem, that was a total downer, but you had earlier said that we're in a better place than we were 10 years ago, okay? So you're balancing... We are in a better place. We are in a better place. We are moving slowly forward. Cam, how are we going with neurodiversity online, how that's presented, how the stereotypes are working? Mm. And is it more... How, how does being autistic affect that experience? I probably can't speak to mainstream places as much as I should be able to. Um, social media and online spaces have been fantastic for neurodiverse people, especially autistic people, because so many of us can't communicate and access community and just see other people like us um, in the ways that non-autistic people take for granted. Um, and we've over the last 20 years formed not only a lot of online communities and a sense of communal identity that just wasn't possible before, um, but have also used these spaces to um, increase understanding about what autism is and to advocate for ourselves. And that's actually had a significant impact on how clinicians see autism. There are some downsides to that as well um, because we often see ourselves misrepresented or um, sort of along the lines of pinkwashing, you get this sort of faux diversity of the white autistic man who doesn't get social things but is a genius showing up in more places <laughs> now as autistic representation. Um, and I realise as I sit here as a white autistic man who's <laughs> often accidentally rude to people. Um, uh, so the downside is that in, I think, in mainstream spaces that diversity is still lacking. But overall, I would say it's just been such an amazing, positive 
for autistic people to have access to others like us after being isolated for so long because isolation is has historically been such a a difficult thing not just for autistic people but for a lot of disabled people who've been assumed to be incapable of forming good positive relationships um, and sometimes have been kept away from other people like them for fear that they'd start being happy with who they are. So... Oh, instead of eternally fighting the unchangeable. Yeah. Um, you know, that ableism is still there. If you don't hate your disability, um, you're somehow doing it wrong. Um, so the online community has given us all access to um, other people who go, no, it's okay. We are like you as well, and we, we can find these ways to, um, to live better lives. Um, my current research looks at autistic communities online, and so much of it is just sharing this sense of community, um, tips of how to navigate the world when it's not designed for you, and support for each other. Um, and that in itself breaks down so many stereotypes about autistics as unemotional and un, unempathetic because there's so much of that in these spaces and I think that's unspeakably valuable. Yeah, I feel like it needs to move outside of those spaces because... That would be great. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the, how do you feel about this? One of the things I've seen a bit recently, um, you know, as people get more concerned about hacking and so on, is uh, companies, I guess, being quite performative in looking for neurodiverse people in order to, um, you know, go through code, track down anomalies and all that sort of thing. Which seems like one of those things on the surface that is like, that's, that's it, it, you know, it's saying neurodiversity is great, but how do you, how mm. do you actually feel about it? Um, I mean, it, it does oversimplify neurodiverse people because I'm not going to decode anything. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it's, it's not wrong to say that a lot of autistic people are great at systems thinking, so, I mean, that's one of those issues that's sort of a catch-22. Um, it does oversimplify the abilities of neurodiverse people, but also it's true that a lot of us have these abilities to offer, and it's good to see that, I guess, moving in a positive direction, even if it's imperfect at present. But <laughs> <laughs> well, the beautiful thing about talking about this instead of tweeting about it is that you can have that nuance and sit mm. with those two different ideas. Absolutely. Um, and I want to ask a sort of, a, you know, similarly structured question to you, Megan, about, well, let's talk about the word fat, for example, and fat shaming, but talking about fat as in, you know, BMI, waist circumference, increase in comorbidities, that sort of stuff. Is that another place where we're still working out what the balance is between being able to talk about obesity and overweight without fat shaming. I mean, that feels like a very difficult path to navigate. It's, it's such a fraught area, I find. And again, working in the community, you know, this idea of obesity is often resisted because it is a very clinical term. And it's, of course, it's such a stigmatized, loaded term. And within the community imagination, this idea that fat equals bad, and that if you're fat, then you're, um, you're not healthy. Uh, and of, of course, online, a lot of the, the fat activists and um, body, body positivity movements and Health at Every Size have been pushing back against that. So that's been a really productive online space. But um, the, the people that I work with um, who might be identified clinically as obese don't use that word obese. They would much prefer to use the word, the word fat. And again, it's part of that reclamation because they will invest a whole lot of different meanings into uh, what fatness affords them to counter a lot of that stigmatising um, which happens in the community. And so a lot of the work I do is with people who are targeted for obesity interventions. Um, and so a way of destigmatizing uh, themselves, their community, their families, is that they'll talk about the ways in which fat actually can be productive in a sense, in that if you're very low um, with your money for a fortnight, uh, and you can't afford to eat, if you've got a little bit of extra weight on you, it can help you get through to the next um, pay. And it's certainly something I've seen um, my other favourite bad feminist talk about, Roxane Gay, in her work, Hunger. Uh, she, 
you know, she, she's talked about, you know, pushing back against the, um, you know, the ways in which obesity is measured through um, the clinical discourse of BMI and, and so forth and the moral judgments which come with people who are, who are identified as obese. Um, but again, she's part of that contradiction, you know, a, a woman who I think she has said that she has betrayed the feminist movement in a sense. She really grapples with this contradiction and other feminists have also written about this, that um, they've gone on diets or they've had weight reduction. Roxane Gay has had uh, surgery to, to um, reduce her weight. So it's, it's a, a contradiction, I think, which many of us would sit with. It's, it's never as easy as just going on a diet and losing weight and uh, it's, a, it's a complicated issue. It is a complicated mm -hmm. issue, as is can the... I, can uh, I say something on yeah, that? Yeah, go. go um, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, thanks, Megan. That, that really spoke to me because I, it's not something I talk about at all, but um, since giving birth to my son, I've lost quite a bit of weight and it's a very fraught thing to talk about even with in your personal life particularly when you have a history of eating disorders and disordering disordered eating and I'm aware of the responsibility that I have in with the platform that I have to not kind of I guess celebrate that um, one of the things that I found I have found really interesting about the outcome of that is that you know, previously with trolls and with men who would write really abusive things to me, they would always focus on the way that I looked and they would always just dismiss my opinion as, well, that's because you're fat and ugly. You're fat and ugly. Um, and I, like, I'm not really bothered by those personal attacks because at some point you've heard it all, that you can't hear... You, there's only so many times you can be called a fat bitch before you're like, well, OK, I guess I'm a fat bitch, then next. Um, but I have noticed that now they have to find other things to accuse me of. So now they call me crazy, um, which again, fine, whatever. Um, they call me crazy or, or a classic man-hater, I'm just angry because I can't get a boyfriend. <laughs> Funny with that, was, if only it were that simple to explain it. Um, so there's something really fraught in there as well that you have these political ideas as a feminist and you have an understanding of how the diet industry is toxic and how it works to entrap us all and yet at the same time for me personally it has removed one thing that is that made my day just a little bit more toxic before and and i i enjoy that and that's a weird feeling to sit with as well that um, you know, by, by playing into... It is playing into the diet industry in some respects to say, well, this makes me more acceptable to trolls. <laughs> the fact that they now can't... Yeah, like, I don't know, it's a weird one. I don't have an answer for it, but it's, it's just a perspective that I yeah. felt like sharing. No, that was really interesting, Clem, and I was thinking, you know, surely it's only people who aren't feminists who would talk about good and bad feminists, you know, the people who <laughs> want to make us all into some sort of, you know, rules-driven <laughs> sisterhood where we can't deviate at all. Tori, do you mind if I just add to this? I because would love I, you to. Because I think when, when you sit with audiences and whoever's watching and streaming afterwards, I think if there's one thing that we can all do that's really practical is never talk about anyone's weight loss or weight gain again. It's mm. mind-blowingly, breathtakingly beautiful what's happened in my circle of friends where once we would say, gosh, you know, you've been dieting, you look amazing, you've lost weight, and then someone else would chime in with their story and their weight loss and their diets and what have you. Mm. I remember when I... <laughs> it's even hard for me to say these words, entered a bodybuilding competition um, when I was trying to navigate how I felt about my body and would it make me happier to have um, that stereotypical sort of bikini body, that strong body. Um, when I got up there on stage, of course, I realised that it was just too, too, took too much time and energy for me to have that particular body shape. But during those 15 weeks of weight loss, I had dozens of mums come up to me in the school and say, my goodness, you've lost weight, you look incredible. And my daughter and my sons were listening to this. And next minute they're going, oh, weight loss, right, okay. We get praised for weight loss. Weight loss is good. So I think, you know, if there's just one thing that we can all do today that will make the world a better place, it is never comment on anyone's weight loss or weight gain again. Perfect.
So I, um, whenever people ask me why I don't have kids, I've always said that I lost my uterus in a tragic fishing accident. It makes no sense, but it's funny. <laughs> but I've often been tempted if somebody has said, you've lost weight, to sort of say, that'll be the cancer, you know? Just to, just to shock people out of that complacency, that they feel that they can comment on that in a way. Yeah. And I don't tell anyone I said that, that's a terrible thing to say. <laughs> Um, hey, we're going to go to questions in a second. So we're going to have a microphone set up in the um, laneway there. So get yourselves together and move, move towards it. But Taryn, just sticking with you for a second. You know, the wellness industry is responsible for many, many ills, not least of which is the idea that you can solve things with a hashtag and a picture of a sunset, but also even just the idea, like, just embrace yourself. You know, like this sort of facile, simplistic idea that it's just, it's something wrong with your head mm. that you think of your body in a certain way. Mm. Is there anything that you can, you know, is, is there a way that you've seen people move to embrace themselves and to be more comfortable with who they are? Well, it would be remiss of me not to say to watch the documentary that nearly mm. took my soul from my body, um, Embrace. It's on Netflix. We actually had a global study on the impact of Embrace that was conducted by Dr. Zali Yeager from uh, Flinders University and Dr. Ivanka Pritchard from, sorry, backwards, Victoria University and Flinders University. Um, and it's just been published in a medical journal, which we're really proud about. So start there, open up the conversation. Um, I just I just think we've all got to remember, and I, I know because being a motivational speaker, I think some people look for the, the fluffy takeaways, um, but truly I see the penny drop when I say to people, you've got 29,000 days on the planet if you're really lucky, and you weren't born into the world hating your body. This is a learned behaviour, and it doesn't make you feel good, so what are you currently doing or buying into that's not serving you? pull back on that. When we talk about social media, um, unfollow people. You know, my social media feed is just a bunch of awesome people that make me go, oh gosh, I better go do something really meaningful in the world. Um, unfollow, uh, turn off your comments. Um, I guess just have a sense of responsibility yourself. And I'm, there's a great Steve Furtick quote um, that says, we we so often compare our behind the scenes with everyone else's highlight reel. Uh, and I, I actually brought a photo. I knew this would come up today. I nearly killed the guys at, uh, at can you, is there a photo you can put up? I said, could you just take Oh, you're this? gonna reveal your behind the scenes. I think it's good for all of us. <laughs> I think it's actually good for our souls. Which actually really echoes what Cam was saying. Earlier, oh yeah, there you go. But, That's... You know, show off the imperfect. Well, when you said that before about five days of dishes, I'm like, I'm gonna give you the dust from under my couch. Because... <laughs> What's that, was that a toilet roll? No, yes. <laughs> And my, my uh, newish partner at the time found this and he goes, that could almost have its own currency. I'm like, I was mortified. Um, but this was my third liked post in 10 years. You know, it, it had sort of tens of thousands of comments and posts and people actually going, oh, I feel so much better about myself. And I think that's what we need to do. We need to lift back the veil, keep it real, share it all, share the good bits and the bad um, and share our dust bunnies as that's called. Does anyone else feel better about seeing this? <laughs> Ta um, Tara from the... Ta I feel like taking a shower. <laughs> oh, Tara Brown from 60 Minutes came to my house to do an interview a couple of years ago. She goes, oh, just move... I think we need to move the bed. And that was under my couch. You should have seen the look she gave me. Oh, that's when you found it. Uh, no, that no. was a separate time. Yeah, <laughs> so dust bunny. I know, guys. Yeah, I've got a cleaner. Don't anyone panic. I've got a cleaner now. <laughs> Megan, uh, everyone... Please go and ask questions or, you know, you'll leave us sitting up here like shags on rocks and make us feel like you're not all that interested. But Megan, thank you so much. Oh, stay there. Um, what would you suggest in terms of letting people embrace who they are? Is that, is that something that's come up in your research? Is there a way for people to kind yeah, of it, get it rid of that? Makes me think about my students, actually, that I teach here at the university, um, my undergraduate students. So. One of the things which I, I love as a teacher here is when the penny drops with students when we're talking about body image and gender and gender relations and identity and words like subjectification and consumption. When they can actually grasp and understand the, 
the, the skills to actually unpack what it is they're looking at, so to step outside and not feel like they're just these sort of passive bodies, um, because the ways in which um, femininity is, is positioned so much as a bodily property and the ways in which we're encouraged or yeah, strongly encouraged to self, you know, to, to be improving of our bodies constantly to, um, to adorn them and to modify them um, within the constructs to become thinner and, and, and more beautiful. You know, these are all social constructs. And once I think you realise how the system operates and what are the wider structures beyond you as an individual so you don't feel overwhelmed or always compelled to follow this never-ending promise of because there's always another product that, you, that is going to be sold to you because you're never good enough, you know, this, this endless idea of perfection. Once I think I see people realising how this works within society, that actually is what's so empowering because that, I feel, is liberating and that's freedom. And it doesn't mean that you have to stop wearing makeup or beautiful glittery shoes and high heels and so forth. It just means that therefore you can, I think, be more playful and have more agency in how you respond to that because, of course, we can't change the capitalist system overnight as much as we would love to. We can't change patriarchy overnight as much as we would love to. But I think once we realise our positioning within that, then that allows us to have some liberation and some freedom. I wish we could still use the old blue pill, red pill analogy, but unfortunately that got stolen by the men's rights <laughs> guys. <laughs> um, and we have a question. Thank you. Hi. Um, so I'm coming at this from a purely a clinical perspective, which is very different, than, I guess, in a social perspective. So I'm a doctor. I work in obstetrics and gynaecology, and along with a lot of other doctors, we have huge difficulty in how do we approach the issue of obesity or, or whatever you want to call it, you know, in a clinical perspective. So, for example, counselling our pregnant women or our postnatal women or our women that are needing surgeries who are who do have BMIs in the obese range, which seriously affect their health, seriously can affect the health of their babies, and also can affect the weight of their babies in the future um, by being overweight during their pregnancy. And I've had complaints against me, um, you know, telling women, you know, you're, if you can manage not to put on weight or to lose some weight during your pregnancy or something like that, about focusing on on weight in consultations, but not talking about that is, 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 I guess, neglecting my clinical responsibility. But how how do we approach this without offending? You know, I'm not. We don't want to offend people. We, you know, we see a lot of women's bodies, and you know, I'm in women's health. I'm a strong advocate for women's health and and women. And I, I just we we can't find you know really acceptable constructive ways of approaching this issue, which is major. Like we're adjusting our clinical practices on a daily basis to, to accommodate this kind of thing and we just don't know how to get that message across without being offensive. Thank you. It's a really it's a really tricky issue. And I think we sort of slightly touched on it before, but um, have any of you got an idea about how to, you know, because it's laden with that moral judgment. Is yeah. there a way to remove the moral uh, the, judgment there and is, have the health? There is some fabulous literature which has uh, recently come out on precisely that issue and women who are accessing servers often say they feel very shamed from those encounters and it's not, it, it's not because this is consciously, purposefully being done, but it's because of the ways in which weight is talked about as, as an individual problem and particularly mothers. Uh, you know, in society, women continue to be positioned as both the givers of food, so we're, you know, we're in control of family food generally, um, so we have a social role and we also have a biological role, and so through pregnancy, what women eat, they're also being highly surveilled and policed around their weight during pregnancy because there is this idea that fat mothers make fat babies. So they sort of get the double whammy there from their social and biological roles and women are very sensitive to that type of policing and shaming, which is a very individual way of addressing the problem. But I think if it can be addressed to say things like, 
rather than, you know, what is it you're eating and, and tracking and, and increasing that surveillance through those pregnancy apps, uh, which I think just feeds into the, the problem, is actually to ask simple questions like, what's going on in your life? Because people are generally, or, you know, I'm generalising here, are often overweight or obese in that clinical sense because there is there are things happening in their life. It might be, you know, in relation to poverty, you know, lack of money, lack of resources. Um, COVID has had a huge impact on people's weight, isolation, family chaos, domestic violence. The list goes on. Um, I think we need to address the, the social uh, structures which are very much part of what what we're calling the obesity epidemic. So take it away from the individual as the individual being responsible, responsible and having to address that in their lives. It's very hard to change your diet or go exercising if you live in a neighbourhood which isn't safe and you can't walk at night. You're a sole parent and you've got five kids. You can't leave them at home. You know, these, these uh, dietary interventions, lifestyle interventions haven't worked but we continue to trot them out. We need to look much more wider to how we can address these problems and support women rather than blame and shame them. Mm. I think there was a study at one point that showed um, a direct correlation between the socioeconomic level of a suburb and how much fast food there would be, uh, pokies in, in pubs and um, unwalkable spaces or just, you know, places mm. that just weren't pleasant yeah. to walk. So the environment, yeah. it's a bit like what we were talking about mm. before, the environment is there and that's, mm. you know, what's... I think, I think we have to be careful though that we're not sort of making this direct association between mm. low socioeconomic people and mm. overweight because it also feeds into another narrative that people just are ignorant and don't know how to look after themselves or their children, which is another part of the blaming and shaming because... Mm. Uh, if you look at the stats around obesity, you know, uh, middle class men are also very overweight. But how much attention do we give to that to say, you know, mm. eat less fine cheese and wine? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. It's Brie and Shiraz, not the Maccas. Yeah. And it's also this centering of weight yeah. as, a, as the primary health problem yeah. when there is, as Megan said, such a variety of things influencing a person's health, but weight is such a visible and normalised. Mm representative of can, someone's overall health. Can I add something, please? Yeah. I feel like I really appreciate how you just addressed that, Megan. I think that the classism around, I'm not suggesting that the questioner was uh, consciously being classist, but I think that the classism around fat shaming is something that everyone needs to be aware of. But also, as someone who went through the public health system and praise to the Australian public health system, we're very lucky to have it, and had a vaginal birth and suffered like a lot of birth trauma from it and physical injuries from that birth. I think that there's so many things that we need to address in the process of people becoming parents and giving birth that move well beyond what they're eating. You know, that it's, it's, it's really infuriating to me how as a society, we're more concerned with how people look after they've given birth and how we can judge on a, on a, in a visible way that is actually not easily assessed. Like, no one can judge someone's health just by looking at them, but that we associate their health with how well they fit back into their genes. And no one ever asks people after they've given birth, how's everything going? How are you feeling? Is your uterus still inside your body where it should be? Or have you <laughs> suffered a prolapse? You know, the, the fact that I gave, I, five weeks after I gave birth, I went to the maternal healthcare nurse and I said... You know, she was going through the questionnaire and she said, how's everything going? And I said, well, I'm really concerned about the lack of control that I have over my bladder because I had, um, I didn't have a prolapse, but I had a very weak pelvic floor because I'd had a really um, intense traumatic delivery. And all I got was she said, oh, well, here's a pamphlet. And she handed me a pamphlet that said one in three women wet themselves after birth. She didn't Great. even offer you the oil. <laughs> like, so what am I supposed to do with that? And yet I know that more people, and particularly judgmental, like, ordinary citizens who love to judge mothers, they're more concerned with whether or not I'm thin after I give birth than whether or not I'm okay, than whether or not I'm actually intact. And I think that that is something that, you know, anyone who's dealing with pregnant people 
needs to center the needs of like, look I, I understand being concerned about the health profile of you know diet uh, but there's just so much more that we need to focus on when it comes to to birth care and after birth care before we even worry about that as far as i'm concerned Clem, thank you so much. And massive apologies. We're actually out of time. Um, you know, I'm sure you all agree that we could have been here for hours more, but we need to clear out and give people the chance to sanitise the place before the next lot come in. So can we just have a final round of applause, please, for our panellists?